Okay, please, let's turn with, in God's holy word to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 14. I'd like to begin reading in chapter 4 at verse 29. Let me uh, let my laptop recognize me here. There, I got it. Okay. Let us hear God's holy word. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. <clears throat> Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander. Along with every form of malice, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners for, with them. <clears throat> for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in circuit, secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, or lead, lead, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Father, that by your grace, you not only give us your word to direct us how we're to live, but you cause your Holy Spirit to work in us to apply that word. That Holy Spirit which is changing us, which is transforming us. Therefore, Father, we pray that you would work more and more to change us and to make us more and more like Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Because of damaging and sinful ways that race, color, ethnicity, and sexuality have been used to divide people in the past, we live in a time when we're very uncomfortable about talking about any differences. However, while we should agree that our treatment of everyone with love is without 
distinction. And that God's salvation through Jesus Christ is offered without distinction. We know that there is a difference between people that cuts across tribe, nation, and language. It is the difference that's described over and over in this letter of Paul. The difference between those who are still in Adam and those who are now in Christ. It is the difference between those who are alive in Christ and those who are still dead in their trespasses and sins. And in these verses, it's the difference between those who Paul describes as light and those who are described as darkness. The world does not want to hear about that kind of separation of all mankind into two groups. However, those who are in Christ, those who believe, those who have been forgiven, have the hope of salvation, of eternal life. And those who are not in Christ, those who do not believe, do not have the hope of salvation. While this general division is clear, because it's all through the New Testament, it's the reason for the gospel to call us from the one into the other. While this division is clear, we are often afraid to use it because some people who claim to be Christians have drawn the line of distinction in the wrong place. Which of us is innocent of prejudice? Which of us is innocent of suspicion? Which of us is innocent of resentment when it comes to those who are different? We've all been guilty of drawing the lines of difference in the wrong place. Therefore, our own attitudes, our own inconsistency have done nothing to show the world the line that God has truly drawn. In this passage, the Spirit inspires Paul to draw a very sharp line, a very sharp line between believer and unbeliever in terms of light and darkness. It isn't simply a matter of who is in the light and who is in the dark as if it's the difference between being in a room with the lights on and in a room where the lights are off. He describes them as being light. Their very nature is light. And the very nature of the others is dark or darkness. It's not the difference between those who have knowledge and those who don't. As we use sometimes say, that person's in the dark, meaning they don't understand. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about having been changed and transformed by Jesus Christ. That difference, as we will see, is focused on those whom Paul here calls idolaters and those who have the one true living God. Interesting point of fact, in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, we have the word atheist. And you know who those who are called atheists are? It's back in chapter 2, when after talking about, let's turn there, chapter 2. Starting with verse 11, where Paul is addressing the Gentiles. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision... That done, in the hands, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at the time, at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. The word there is atheist, without. That's what the ah means, without, the absence of. So they were without. So who are the atheists? 
the idolaters. Why? Because if you don't have the true God, you have no God at all. Without hope and without God in the world. And so now Paul comes back and he's bringing a lot of things together from earlier in this letter. And he draws this sharp line. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 14, I would like us to see separated from us, separated from them, and exposing the sins that separate us. In the first half of this letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul began by enumerating all of the glorious blessings which believers have received in Christ Jesus. He went on to contrast sin and death with the new life and salvation that we have by our union to Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. He tells us that we have been recreated in Christ Jesus to do good works, Ephesians 2.10. He then makes it clear that Gentile believers, as I've already pointed out, are no afterthought in the plan of God, but rather have received the very same salvation and blessing as Jewish believers. Beginning in chapter 4, Paul emphasized the unity of all believers over and over by pointing to the Christ-like character that every believer should have. He reminds us that every believer has been given the same faith. Every believer has been given the same hope, has been given, has been made a member of the same body of Christ and has received the same sign of baptism. Furthermore, he made that unity clear by emphasizing that Christ's people have been given those preaching officers, namely, in his day, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors, have been given the same preaching officers who are used by Christ to bring us to a unity of the faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ through their proclamation of God's word. Therefore, we are all called to stop walking like those who are in the world and to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, to walk in love as imitators of God. We are to be like Jesus because we have been recreated after his likeness in true righteousness and holiness. Paul has made clear that the change that is being brought about in us is a change that Christ is bringing about. He's the one who's doing it. It is a change that is part of a process. It's not instantaneous. It's not like flipping on the light switch back there or flipping it off. We are to stop walking in one way and we're to start walking in another. But it's a process of stopping and starting. We're to put off the old self, mean constantly putting off the old self, like dirty clothes, clothing, and then to put on a new self. Therefore, the believers who steal must stop stealing, he says. The believers who lie must stop lying. We are to stop using corrupt talk and use only speech that builds others up at the appropriate time. We are to forgive and we are to love as we have been forgiven and as we have been loved. However, Paul needs to push us further. The taking off of our old self is so important here that he emphasizes that the old behavior is not only inconsistent with our new life in Christ. That old behavior excludes those involved in it from receiving an inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. 
That is what Paul describes in these verses. We have been changed. We have been changed. We are light in the Lord and must walk as children of light. Separated from us. Verses 3 through 5. Let me be plain. The point that Paul is going to make here is that idolaters have no inheritance with the saints. You either have the true God or you don't have the true God. You can't have both. It's one or the other. He is connecting sexual immorality and covetousness here to idolatry. And there's a reason for that. In his writing to the saints who are in Ephesus, Paul has described many sins that we as believers must take off as God's Spirit works in us to change us. Here, he moves on to name sins that not only must not be named among us, they are sins that exclude us from an inheritance in God's and Christ's kingdom. Now, let's let that sink in. Who is it that doesn't receive an inheritance? Somebody who's not a child. So if you commit these sins, you're not a child, therefore you have no inheritance. That's the point. Paul writes, Paul writes that sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must but not be named among us. There must be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking, but instead thanksgiving, he says. Then he comes back to the first sin. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Like I said, now let's sink that in. You can't say that you have an inheritance in one. The reason, why does he say, this is the only passage, by the way, in the New Testament where it links both the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of God. You read in passages about the kingdom of Christ, you read another passage about the kingdom of God, this is the only passage in the entire Bible where the two are put together. Why? Because just in case you think that while you've been excluded from one, that you still have a place in the other, Paul says them both so that you know. Everyone, you don't have an inheritance, period. You have no inheritance with Christ or God if you commit these sins. If you're in sexual immorality and covetousness, no matter what a person thinks of their own relationship to Christ, if they are unrepentant, then they have no inheritance with Christ. And that's the point, on lack of repentance. Many people in the New Testament committed these sins, but there must be repentance and change because we are being changed by the Spirit. In the Old Testament, God frequently compared Israel's idolatry to adultery and sexual immorality. Read Hosea. When Israel betrayed her one husband, God, she was compared to a woman who betrays her husband by going off with other men. God made it clear that he does not share. God doesn't share. He says, you shall have no other gods before me, meaning no other gods beside or in addition to him. He also says, for I am a jealous God. In other words, he was telling his people, I don't share. You can't worship me and worship idols. 
Idolatry was not only characterized as a form of idolatry or sexual immorality. Sexual immorality was often, most often, part of the worship of idols. And certainly the mythology of the gods of the nations was characterized by a great deal of sexual immorality. Anybody who studied Greek or Roman mythology knows that. And in fact, in Ephesus, anybody remember from the book of Acts what the great idol was in Ephesus? Artemis, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Artemis, if you were a devout worshiper of Artemis, you gave yourself to two years as a temple prostitute. I've heard of people signing up for the army for their nation for two years. You gave yourself, doesn't matter, man or woman. If you're a devout follower of Artemis, you gave yourself over for two years of temple prostitution. That's how you served the goddess in Ephesus. So Paul knows exactly, having spent more than three years there, he knows exactly how these people think and exactly what their lives used to be and what was in their lives from the past. With the proclamation of the New Testament to the Gentiles, we discover that sexual immorality was the sin that chiefly characterized the Gentiles' former way of life. Covetousness, on the other hand, may surprise us by its presence here. But both here and in Colossians 3, verse 5, it's called idolatry. What is coveting? Well, we know it's the 10th commandment. Coveting is the desire for something that God hasn't given to us because we aren't content with what we've been given. We want the strawberry ice cream that the other person has rather than the plain vanilla that we were given. Covetousness was the sin that Paul realized that he himself was guilty of in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. He says, For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So Paul admits, this was my sin. Unlike other sins condemned by God's commands, coveting was the only sin for which the Old Testament law provided no punishment. Why? I can find out if you murdered somebody. I can find out if you stole something. I can even observe that you're dishonoring your parents. But I can never know whether you're coveting. It's a sin in the heart. It may look like coveting, but I can't know it's coveting because I don't know what's in your heart. Only God does. And so it's the only commandment for which there's no provision of punishment in the Old Testament. It is called idolatry here and in Colossians. Because in this sin, we're exchanging our love and service for the Lord who provides for all of our needs for a love and service for the things of this world. We are showing that we are not content with what God has given us. We want something else or we want something more. Because we want to derive our pleasure and our joy from it. That thing or that person that we want becomes for us an idol. And that's why it's called idolatry. When we think of idolaters, we think of those who go and stand before a statue in worship. We think of those who place food or flowers at an altar. We think of those who stand and pray before a shrine or image, or those who bow down before a man or image as if he is a god 
or as if it is a god or goddess. But idolatry is far broader than that. We are practicing idolatry anytime that we trust in or live for anything or anyone other than the one true God. Sexual immorality is the other sin listed here. It includes all sorts of sexual sin. It isn't just adultery. We know that because in first, the First Corinthians passage, Paul lists adultery and homosexuality separately from sexual immorality. And again, Paul says that they will in not inherit the kingdom of God along with the covetous, the thieves, and the drunkards. So what are we to think here? In our day, it isn't just those outside the church who are involved in things like internet pornography and adultery. It is those within the church. Can we soften God's words here and assure each other not to worry about it? Let me emphasize, these are not unforgivable sins. They are forgivable sins. Jesus forgives and saves. He raises the dead and he gives life. He blesses with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and he satisfies every good desire. And before they came to Christ, we know that most Gentiles were deeply involved in these sins. But that former state is contrasted here with what we are now in Christ. So no, it isn't okay that Christians commit sexual sins. And anyone who says it is, is lying. So what, do, what, are, what of those who are entrapped by these sins? What are they going to do? To answer that, I want us to consider what is going on in this passage. In the previous verses, Paul wrote that those in Christ are to put off the old self and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. If you've spilled something on your shirt and pants and need to put on new clothes, do you put your new clothes on over your old clothes? I mean, if you spilled some coffee on that white shirt this morning, or I spilled some on mine, would I put another white shirt over top of the other shirt? What would happen? You'd see that stain right through that, wouldn't you? You'd see it right there. You ever seen the guy who's wearing the white shirt and he's wearing an undershirt underneath it that has a picture of like Metallica or some other like weird thing underneath? Like, did he look at the mirror before he went out of the house? Like, what's up with that? At any rate, that's how it is. Those stains shine through, don't they? And if I got, I know the ladies did a wonderful job of painting downstairs. If I put, if, if, if a little child got loose with a pen, an ink pen up here, and they drew on this wall, how many times would I have to paint over that wall to cover up that ink stain? It wouldn't cover. It wouldn't matter how many coats of white paint I put over that ink stain, what would it do? Bleed through. In my dad's day, you had to put a piece, you had to swipe that with shellac. To, you had to create a barrier. In my day when I was painting, you'd use kills or you'd use bullseye. And I don't even know what they have on the market nowadays. You'd have to put a barrier over that, otherwise it bleeds through. You see, if we don't take off the old, and I'm not, now I'm going to ask, I'm not asking for confessions. Don't want to see hands. How many of you this morning, you wore something to bed last night. You got up this morning. Did you put these clothes on over top of your bed clothes? No. You had to take off the old in order to put on the new, right? That's what has to happen. That's what has to happen. 
Otherwise, I can tell that bedclothes are on there because everything's bunched all out. You know what I'm talking about. But, you see, in Christ, you are new creations. It is only as new creations that you will have an inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. And so often, we think of the Christian life as that which we must add. What do I need to add to my life? I need to read the Bible more. Well, guess what? In order to read the Bible more, I need to stop doing something else less, right? I'm not going to find time to read the Bible in my day. It's pretty filled up. I don't have that downtime. Same, likewise, if I need to pray more, if I need to worship more, I'm going to have to stop doing something else in order to pray. Or stop doing something else in order to make sure that I'm at worship. So we say to ourselves, I need to be more loving. I need to have more peace in my life. I need to have more joy in my life. What we think about less is what we have to take off in order to put on that love, to put on that peace, to put on that joy. If you are going to read the Bible more, pray more, go to worship more, there's something you have to stop doing. And you can't, because you can't add time to your day or week. And to be more loving, you're going to have to be less mean and angry. You're going to have to be less frustrated. In order to have more joy and peace, you're going to have to have less anxiety and be less critical and be less complaining. Something has to come off in order to put something else on. Most of you know that I look different than I used to. Some of you do anyway. I lost 100 pounds. I did it between, um, between December, of 2000 and, 2000, December of 2017 and finally by the end of October of 2018, 10 months. I was full, it was full of physically pounding headaches. It was full of craving the foods that I love and know that I can never eat again. It was because I was, had become diabetic. I can't go back or I'll become diabetic again. It was the only way to get my A1C and it took that much to get my A1C down from being diabetic to the very top of normal. It was a fight. Every day it is a fight against desire and temptation. The aroma of a bakery in China when I was with the Montgomery's was so overwhelming. I had to say, Jeremiah, here's what I want. I got to stand outside. I could not stand in that bakery. But I can't go back without becoming a diabetic. In my case, the cravings are no longer every day, but occasionally they are nearly overwhelming. But I know... I can't go back. Are you struggling with the sins named in this passage? Good. Keep struggling because they have no place in Christ's kingdom. Do you know believers that are struggling with these sins? Pray for them and encourage them with the hope of the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work. Most of all, encourage them with the hope of the resurrection. We, wouldn't be, we shouldn't be content with having these sins continue in our lives. It is a war 
It is a struggle. Therefore, we should be groaning and we should be longing for Christ to change us. Christ has made you a new creation and he is making you a new creation. <coughs> he is changing you and that change isn't easy because it also means that even as he puts things on, he's taking other things off. And you need to cooperate with the Spirit in taking off the old. Separated from them, verses 6 through 10. Here we see that the children of the light are to have no fellowship with those who practice these sins because in Christ we are light and no longer part of the darkness. Paul says that we must therefore not be partners with those who commit these sins. Now, we aren't being told to cut off our contact with sinners. We are, because then we'd have to cut off contact with ourselves. We are being told not to be partners with them. Paul says that, sin, that this is because of the difference in our nature from what we were and what we are now. Prior to Christ's work by which we have been regenerated, justified, and are being sanctified, we were darkness. It isn't simply that we lived in darkness. It is what we were. Now we are light and should walk as children of light, bearing the fruit of light, trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. In John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus described himself as the light that has come into the world and who was rejected because the world loved darkness rather than light. In John 8, 12, and in John 9, 5, we are told that Jesus said that he is the light of the world. Therefore, in John 12, 46... We are told that Jesus said, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And this is why in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus told his disciples, you are the light of the world. See, partners share things. In a partnership, there's give and take. Sometimes they do what you want, and sometimes you do what they want. Light and dark can't have a partnership. The light is either on or it's off. Jesus is the light of the world, and we are children of his light. Either we are children of the light or we are children of the darkness. We can't be a little of both. Your life is in Christ and doing those things that serve him, bearing fruit that brings him glory. This is why you have been recreated in Christ, according to Ephesians 2, verse 10, to do those good works which he has prepared in advance for you to do. This is why you are no longer to walk as the Gentiles do. This is why you are to walk in love, imitating God, Ephesians 5, 1. Yes, there are still sins in every Christian, but by his grace... The same Lord who makes us new creations and gives us the fruit of the Spirit is the same Lord who is taking from us those sins which once characterized the darkness of our former life, exposing the sins that separate light from darkness. Verses 11 through 14. The fact that we, are still, that we still sin is the very reason that the world is unable to see the distinction between those who are light and those who are darkness. 
Here we are told that children of the light are to expose the deeds of darkness, and it is difficult to do that when we are committing the same sins that we are supposed to be trying to expose. As we saw, Jesus declares that he is the light and that he is coming, that has come into the world. Light exposes darkness. Since we are light, we must not take part in the works of darkness. Instead, we are told that we are to expose the darkness, and we do this through our actions and words. In 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler, drunker or swindler, not to even eat with such a one, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is, not those in, is it not those inside the church who you, whom you are to judge? Judge it. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, we should see that unless we name the sins committed by the darkness, how are men and women to understand what is condemned by God and the salvation and hope that is offered to them from sin through Jesus Christ? However, it must not only be by our words that the works of darkness are condemned. The light of our lives should serve as a bright contrast to their darkness. How can we speak against the sins of those who need to repent and flee to Christ when those sins are present in us? Neither the sexually immoral or the covetous will inherit the kingdom of God or of Christ. But by his almighty, merciful grace... That is not something that true believers have to worry about because he has made you and me new creations. He is taking off the old man and through the changes that Christ is making in you, he exposes the darkness with his light and makes you his light of the world. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the promises of change. We thank you, Father, because we ourselves have seen the changes in us, even though too often they're not seen by other people. We go back and spend time with them, and all they hear are the same kinds of criticisms that we rendered in the past. And we feel terrible because we know we're not that person anymore. We go back and spend time with them and all they see is the way that we seem to waste our time. And we feel bad because we know that by your grace, we're not that person anymore. Father, how we long to be completely changed. And yet we know, Lord, that your work in us to change our speech, to change our lives, to take off the old and put on the new will not be finished until you take us home or Jesus comes back. And therefore, Lord, we look to you. That not only would the world see in us those who in some areas have not yet been changed, who are not yet what we will be. We pray that they will also see your grace that is at work in us. 
that they will see that while there's still some of the old, that there's less of it and more and more of the new by your grace and the transforming work of your spirit in our lives. Many of us will see our families today and therefore they will hear things from our mouth and see things in our lives. We pray that they will hear Jesus. They will see Jesus and they will want to know the same. Jesus. We pray, Father, for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.